A long time ago, there was a man in this very village who had an eye who could see the truth. Now, usually you have to train your mind's eye most strenuously to actually see the truth. But this fella? No, they say he had a different way of doing things. His house stood where the well is now. This week on Legendary Adventures Podcast, we seek the truth in order to find the goddess of the sand. There's a bit of a quirk in how I decided to play through Ocarina of Time. Because I chose to tackle the Spirit Temple ahead of the Shadow Temple, this part of the game has an extensive run-up to the dungeon. It starts with braving what is widely regarded as one of the most terrifying locations in all of the Zelda series, the bottom of the well. The well sits in the center of Kakariko Village. The windmill looms large above it. In the future, there are multiple people in town who give hints who say the way to see the truth is hidden within Kakariko, and the windmill and the well are somehow linked together. Inside the windmill, we find a man who is trying to compose a song based on the rotating motion of the windmill. In the future timeline, he's extremely put out. That's because seven years ago, a young boy who looked like Link played a song on an ocarina which made the windmill go crazy. He teaches Link that song, the Song of Storms. With this, players should know what they have to do. Returning to the Temple of Time, I met Sheik. It's possible to have this meeting earlier, but I saved it for this section of my playthrough. Sheik explains that Link can travel back to the past by returning the Master Sword to the pedestal. They also teach Link the Prelude of Light. A song which allows players to fast travel to the temple. Sheik says one day Link will need to quickly return to the temple. Returning to Link's childhood, we return to Kakariko and play the Song of Storms inside the windmill. Teaching the music man the very song that he taught to us. How's that for a paradox? The song also causes the windmill to spin rapidly draining the well, allowing us access to the mini dungeon below. The mini dungeon is made of brown stone with blood stains visible on the floor and some walls. There's a room with jail cells and torture instruments, a room with coffins, undead enemies everywhere. Scary indeed. There are also a number of false walls and false floors. A truly terrifying callback to Zelda 2. Players are introduced to these right away when they come to what appears to be a dead end. Navi will fly to a skeleton and ominously tell us that she can hear the spirits urging Link to find the Lens of Truth. Players can then walk through the wall to enter the dungeon proper. The bottom of the well spans three floors. All three are basement levels. The first floor is the largest. It's built around a loop and is partially flooded. The second floor is the smallest, and it holds the boss fight and key item. The third is between the two floors in size. It features four branching paths set off a circular central room. The central room contains re-deads and a sickly green pool. The bottom of the well is actually much less complex than it first appeared. Most of the space is optional, but finding the correct path can take a lot of trial and error due to the false walls and floors. I stubbornly attempted to push my way through a number of obstacles prior to getting the lens, 
and I only ended up getting mildly frustrated as I fell down to the bottom floor and had to work my way up again. Eventually, I decided just to buckle down and get the lens. At the north end of the first floor, there's a statue on the wall, which has water pouring from its mouth. Navi explains that is what's flooding the dungeon. There's a Triforce icon on the floor. By this point, players should know what to do. Playing Zelda's Lullaby causes the water to drain. This allows players to return to the entrance and crawl through a small tunnel which was formerly submerged in water. It leads to the boss of the mini-dungeon, Dead Hand. This boss genuinely scared me the first time I encountered it on my very first playthrough. Nowadays, not so much. There are four deathly white hands on impossibly long arms sticking out from the ground. If they grab length, the true creature rises from the ground. It has a blobby, shapeless, blood-stained body with stumps where its arms should be. Its neck is impossibly long. And at first, to me, it appeared to be headless, that is, until it got close. Then the neck beds down, revealing a face with an impossibly large mouth, which tries to bite Link. Players can just slash away to damage Dead Hand. It will retreat after a few hits, meaning players will have to go a few rounds of revealing it and damaging it. I understand that there are more ways to reveal the creature, but I mainly just let a hand grab me. When it dies, it lays on the ground, twitching. This last disturbing detail for me was undercut. The treasure chest appeared under the body, making it rise from the ground as it awkwardly twitched. More funny than scary. Inside the chest is the lens of truth. The lens allows Link to see otherwise invisible things, such as false walls and floors, hidden treasure chests, and enemies. It's a similar concept to the magnifying lens in Link's Awakening. But this is an item that players activate with a button press. It also consumes magic as players use it. The first thing I did after getting it was cheat on a treasure chest gambling game in Castletown. It's open only at night. Players normally have to make a blind guess between two treasure chests. One has a rupee, the other a key, which will allow them to advance to another room for another guess, until reaching the ultimate prize, a piece of heart. The Lens of Truth allows players to see inside the chests, allowing them to always pick the correct chests until they claim the prize. When Link was a child, he could not enter Gerudo Valley. The tools he needed just weren't available. When players arrive to the valley as an adult, the bridge is broken, meaning players either need to use their long shot to reach a grapple point on the far side of the gorge, or jump over it with Epona. When players make this leap, the camera dramatically changes to show Epona leap from below. This apparently was one thing that Shigeru Miyamoto wanted from the very beginning when he asked for Link to have a horse in this game. In a 2011 Iwata Asks interview, script director Tora Osawa said, I had Miyamoto-san explain Epona but at first he only talked about the camera work. He said that when the horse jumped, he wanted to see it from below. That's all he said. He said we should have it jump over a valley and show it from the bottom of the valley against the light so that the light would break through. Eiji Onuma then chimed in saying, it's unusual for Miyamoto-san to make requests regarding such aspects of presentation. Osawa agreed saying, yes, this is the only time he ever said, I want to see visuals like this, so make it happen. On the other side of the valley, Link meets the Master Carpenter. His four employees have decided to become thieves and have run off to join the Gerudo. 
Instead, they've become prisoners, meaning that we have to rescue them from the second mini-dungeon of this section, Thieves' Hideout. The hideout stands apart from the bottom of the well or the ice cavern in that there's no map or compass to find. On top of that, it's a stealth mission. Players need to avoid being seen by Gerudo warriors who patrol the Gerudo fortress and the inner hideout. If seen, players will be thrown into a prison cell, and will have to use the long shot to escape. It's possible to attack the warriors from a distance with the bow. They won't die, they'll just be knocked unconscious as evidenced by the stars that circle around their head when hit. Players need to rescue all four carpenters. To do so, they first need to find them, then fight a Gerudo warrior mini-boss. These warriors wield two swords, which they use both to defend and attack. They have two types of attacks, a small swing, which will damage Link, and a jump attack. If they manage to hit Link with the jump attack, he will lose automatically and be tossed into the prison cell. I managed to avoid getting hit by the jump attacks on my playthrough. Each mini-boss rewards Link with a key when defeated. The hideout spans four floors and is divided into roughly six separate interior spaces. They are linked by outdoor areas. Players must weave in and out and clamber across the roof to reach all parts of the fortress. When the last carpenter is freed, he will tell Link the Eye of Truth is needed to cross the haunted wasteland to reach the Desert Colossus and the Spirit Temple inside. A Gerudo warrior also appears and praises Link for his skills and grants him membership to the Gerudo tribe. Now that Link is a card-carrying Gerudo, players no longer need to slink around. There is yet another mini-dungeon that is now accessible. This one, however, is entirely optional. It's called the Gerudo Training Ground. There is a Gerudo dressed in white standing in front of a gate on the east side of the fortress. Players can pay her 10 rupees to gain entrance. Inside, players are told they must overcome trials to obtain the Gerudo secret treasure. In the first room, there are three doors in addition to the entrance. The middle door leads to the goal, but the treasure is locked behind a series of locked doors. Players must go through a series of challenges in the other rooms in order to get this treasure. There are nine keys to collect in all. Eight can be attained without having first visited the spirit temple to get the silver gauntlets. A minimum of seven keys are needed to reach the treasure but players must take the correct path in order for that to work. The doors to the left and right lead to an outer ring of rooms which contain the challenges. In each room, players will receive a dialogue box explaining what the challenge is. There are two rooms where players are required to defeat enemies within a time limit. Two rooms where players must collect silver rupees to obtain a key. There's also one key where players are required to stand on a rotating platform and shoot the eyes of three statues to obtain the key. And there's one key that's just sitting out in the open in one of the silver rupee rooms. After completing these challenges, players will have all seven keys that they need to get the treasure. There is a room with a massive block which can only be pushed with the silver gauntlets to access a side room with another key, but I did not have the gauntlets, so I did not get this key. The ninth key is obtained on the path to the treasure. The lens of truth is needed to find it. I did grab this one. To ensure the correct path to the treasure, players should return to the first room they entered in, go through the middle door, and then follow the left path. The reward is ice arrows. These are entirely optional, but they can come in handy. To the north of Gerudo's fortress, there's a massive gate blocking the entrance to the haunted wasteland. With the membership card now in hand, players can have the gate opened by speaking to Gerudo on the lookout tower. She explains there are two challenges Link must overcome in the wasteland to reach the Desert Colossus. First, players must follow flags marking the correct path through a raging sandstorm in the desert. 
Players will need to grapple to a box to get over a river of quicksand and then start following the flags. Players will eventually reach a stone structure surrounded by flags. A tablet on the top reads, One with the Eye of Truth shall be guided to the Spirit Temple by an inviting ghost. Using the lens of truth, Link can see a Poe which beckons him to follow it. The Poe leads Link on a winding path through the desert, eventually taking him to the exit. Beyond the wasteland, players will find the Desert Colossus. At the far end of the open area of the desert, there's a massive stone statue carved in the likeness of a woman. This is the Goddess of the Sand, referred to by Sheik as they outline the dungeons to Link. The carving ends at the waste, and the entrance to the Spirit Temple lies just beneath it. Before heading into the Spirit Temple, there's another magic spell we can obtain. To the right of the entrance of this portion of the desert, there's a vulnerable wall marked by two trees and a subtle crack in the wall. Inside is a great fairy fountain. This fairy grants the spell Nehru's Love. It's said to cast a protective barrier. I can't recall ever using this personally. I plan to try to use the spell at some point during this playthrough, but basically I just forgot about it and ultimately never did. Let's talk about the music of the Spirit Temple for a second. This is easily the most melodic dungeon music yet. I find that interesting because Koji Kondo said he was specifically directed to create non-melodic music for the dungeons. Here we have deep synth strings performing a call and answer harmony, punctuated by a tinkling bell-like sound. A wind instrument of some kind comes in with a clear melody. To me it gives off sort of a stereotypical Middle Eastern Arabian Nights type vibe, but I honestly dig it. The Spirit Temple stands out as the most unique dungeon in the game. It's built in two distinct parts. This is the only dungeon that really plays off the dual nature of Ocarina of Time's world. When first entering the Spirit Temple, we immediately come to a dead end. The first room contains a fork in the road, but neither path is accessible when players first venture inside. A massive stone, which Link cannot move, blocks the path to the right. The entrance to the path of the left is too small for an adult to fit through. These two sides of the dungeon represent future and past. The future side is to the right, the past side to the left. There are two cobra-shaped statues on each side. Each has writing on it. The statue on the future side reads, If you want to travel to the future, you should return here with the power of silver from the past. The statue on the past side reads, If you want to proceed to the past, you should return here with the pure heart of a child. This is our hint that this dungeon is completed in two parts one part as young Link and the other part as adult. In a way, it reminds me of Hyrule Castle in A Link to the Past. That dungeon was also split into two distinct parts connected by a common area. In Hyrule Castle, it was the main floor of the castle that connected them. Here, it's a room with a second Colossus statue. The Spirit Temple stands apart in that Hyrule Castle bookended the first act of the game. Players were required to leave the castle and tackle other challenges before returning to the second part. Here, only optional challenges lie between the two parts. Likewise, the structure of the challenges in the Spirit Temple are clearly designed to be parallels to each other. I feel I can't really say the same about Hyrule Castle, beyond both sections making use of some dark rooms lit by lantern. The castle and the Spirit Temple are ultimately quite different from each other, but I felt the connection all the same. Upon exiting the Spirit Temple, Sheik appears and teaches Link a new fast travel song, The Requiem of Spirit.
As Sheik and Link play together, the owl, Kipora Gabora, can be seen watching them. It flies off as the song ends. This is, to my memory, the only time the owl is seen in the future. It's here in this dungeon which promises to link both the future and the past. We fast travel to the Temple of Time and place the Master Sword to return to the past. Then fast travel back to the Desert of Colossus to take on the Spirit Temple. The Spirit Temple spans four floors and is built in a similar way on both sides. It's not entirely symmetrical, but the challenges on both the past and the future sides are designed to mirror each other in a way. The past side is ultimately simpler. Players will venture through three floors on this side and will be introduced to the simplest forms of the dungeon's mechanics. The future side will iterate on those mechanics with increased complexity. As we first enter the temple, we notice a Gerudo blocking the hole which leads to the past side of the dungeon. This is Nibiru, named for one of the towns on Zelda II's eastern continent. She may be a Gerudo, but she does not support Ganondorf. After picking the correct dialogue options, Nibiru explains that Ganondorf and his followers use the Spirit Temple as a base. She plans to steal their treasure and mess up their plans, but she needs the Silver Gauntlets from the past side to enter. She promises to do something great for Link if he brings her the Silver Gauntlets. We're told they won't fit a child as an extra incentive to get them for Nibiru. As we venture into the past side of the temple, we'll find a series of more or less self-contained challenges to work through. Players will tackle two Silver Rupee challenges, these were first introduced in the Ice Cavern are becoming only more common as the game progresses. There's also a torch puzzle to solve. New concepts introduced here include new enemies called Anubis. These are flying enemies which have the head of a jackal like the Egyptian god, but have no limbs or body. They will breathe fire at Link if he swings his sword, and they are also weak to fire. In the room with the Anubis, the exit is barred shut, and the Anubis must be defeated in order to open it. There is a narrow, roughly S-shaped floor with holes on either side. Players must cross the room and place themselves opposite the door, then use the slingshot to hit a crystal switch, turning on a fire barrier which will burn up the enemy. Alternatively, players can use fire attacks such as dense fire or fire arrows as an adult. Players will also encounter two new switches shaped like the sun. These are activated by shining light on them. Activating the first switch requires players to destroy a bombable section of the wall to allow light through. However, the section to destroy sits high on the wall. The intended way to do it is with bomb shoes, mouse-shaped bombs which travel forward in a straight line once placed. These can climb walls. It's possible to have the bomb shoes before entering this space, but on the off chance that you don't, there is a crystal switch in the room which reveals a chest containing bomb shoes. The bomb shoes are also somewhat fickle. They can change path based on the shape of the terrain before them, and they can veer off course. Here, the setup is simple enough that I didn't have much problem with it. When the light shines through, it lands on the sun switch and activates it, opening the door. For the second puzzle, we have to move one block out of the way to get access to another block with a sun switch on top. We then pull that block into a shaft of light. There is a central room to the dungeon that players will return to multiple times but it's one of the least clear examples of this concept we've seen. This room contains a second Colossus statue. Players will enter three times, but they'll enter from a different direction each time. This room is ultimately the path to the boss room, but players won't be able to open that path until they make their third trip to this room. The first trip is made as a child. Players will push an Armo statue onto a switch to open a door and light a pair of torches at the base of the statue to get the dungeon map. Players end this section with a mini-boss fight. It's against an Iron Knuckle, a powerful armored enemy which we first saw in Zelda 2. This is yet another nod from Ocarina of Time towards the second game. 
Here, the Iron Knuckle sits on a throne and must be attacked before the fight begins. It wields a massive axe, and it hits hard. It does not have a shield, unlike in Zelda 2. Players will have to avoid its attacks, then quickly move in to land hits of their own during brief openings. Once the Iron Knuckle falls, players can progress outside onto the right hand of the Outer Colossus statue. Here we'll get the first of two dungeon items, yes two. Here it's the Silver Gauntlets. As Link collects the item, the Owl appears. The Owl says it believed the stories of a boy who could travel back and forth in time were merely a legend. It says it's time to place the future of Hyrule on Link's shoulders. It also gives him a hint before departing, saying, Two witches inhabit this temple. In order to destroy them, turn their own magic power against them. We will also see these witches capture Nabooru, allowing us to return to the future and feel no guilt about not handing the gauntlets over to her. On the future side of the dungeon, we find many similar challenges as on the past side, but the difficulty of each challenge is scaled up. Players enter the future side of the dungeon by using the silver gauntlets to push a massive block. There's only one silver rupee collecting challenge. It does feature one rupee, which many players assume can only be collected through use of the hover boots, but it can actually be reached with the long shot. Players just need to stand on the opposite side of the room and target the climbable wall on the other end, making sure the silver rupee is in their travel path. The second visit to the central Colossus rooms involves jumping to the statue's hand and using Zella's lullaby to reveal a chest with a key in order to advance. There's also some optional goodies, such as a gold Skulltula which can only be collected as Adult Link. A door barred shut between the two staircases on the first floor is totally optional, and I ignored it, but there is a rusty switch which Adult Link can reach to open it. A second Anubis room features a grid of narrow pathways and three Anubis enemies to defeat. This time I took them out with fire arrows, but there is a floor switch which turns on another fire barrier to burn them away if you wish to attempt the puzzle. This segment also steps up the switch and light puzzles by introducing mirrors. Hey, are you noticing a theme here? There are two mirrored sides of the dungeon, enemies which mirror Link's movements, and now actual mirrors. These mirrors are locked in place, but they can be rotated to bounce light to an appropriate sun switch. And the second dungeon item is the mirror shield. It's obtained after a second fight with another iron knuckle. Link's larger size makes it trickier to dodge the attacks, but the fight's not significantly different from the first. After the Iron Knuckle falls, we exit onto the left hand and get Link's new shield. With this shield, Link can direct light two switches more flexibly and without having to have a permanently placed mirror. This is also the first time since the original Legend of Zelda we've seen a dungeon feature two key items. At least three dungeons in the original game feature two key items in the dungeon, but it's a rarity across the rest of the series. In the first game, I can't say it felt as if there was any particular rhyme or reason for multiple items being placed in the dungeon, but here it's a further extension of that mirrored past and future theme of the dungeon. The boss key room feels a little out of place. It feels like it's a leftover from the fire temple that was just moved here. It's a room with false doors all over the walls and packed with fire slugs. The chest is surrounded by a fire barrier. There's a floor switch on a platform floating above the chest. There is a grapple target on the ceiling, but it's too far from the chest to be of use. Players must find an eye switch behind a false door, and then shoot it with an arrow to create a second floating pillar to reach the switch and ultimately get the chest. The Lens of Truth helps out here, but again the room just feels like it was cut from the fire temple and placed here instead. 
After getting the shield and boss key, players use the mirrors to direct light onto an elevator. Link can activate a switch to enter the central room for a third time, this time descending from above. Players then need to shine light onto the statue's face to cause it to dissolve, revealing the boss door. The boss fight here is a little unusual. The boss door doesn't lead directly to the boss room, but a third iron knuckle mini boss. This one starts out differently in that it's introduced with a comical cutscene featuring the ultimate boss of the dungeon, the twin witches Koume and Kotake. They are also known as Twin Roba. The defeat of this iron knuckle is also different. It's revealed to be Niburu, who was brainwashed and under control of the witches. They plan to brainwash her again and magically transport her to somewhere else. We can then progress on to the actual boss fight. The fight plays out in two parts. The first part seems sensible based on what we've experienced so far. Each witch represents a different element. One is fire, the other ice. They fly around the room and occasionally fire an elemental beam at Link. Players must use their mirror shield to bounce the beam towards the witch of the opposite element. After a few hits, the witches combine into one, becoming a giant, much younger woman, who is half fire and half ice. And this is where the boss fight goes weird. I totally forgot how this part worked, and it took me a little bit to figure it out. The idea is still to bounce their magic back at them, but suddenly the way that that functions changes completely. When players block an elemental attack, Link's shield will start blinking. Block a second attack of the same element and it will blink even faster. Block a third of the same element and suddenly the magic will shoot back out of the shield. Why the attacks simply aren't mirrored back, who knows? Who knows how any of this works? After being hit by the reflected attack, players can jump over to Twin Rova's platform and land hits with the sword. After the boss falls, they continue to defy expectations for the game. Rather than just dissolving away, the witches die in a comical fashion. Halos appear above their heads and they ascend into a pillar of light, bickering the entire way. Players can get the heart container if they choose, then exit the temple. Nibiru appears in the Chamber of Sages and promises to assist Link, granting him a medallion. Her earlier promise of giving Link something great also becomes strangely sexualized. First she says, Instead of keeping the promise I made back then, I give you this medallion. Then as the screen fades to white, she says, If only I knew you would become such a handsome man, I should have kept the promise I made back then. And all I can say is, what? Players are offered vague rewards all the time in Zelda games. They're often described as being something good, or even great. I honestly thought nothing of seeing the original promise. But this recoloring of it seems to come out of nowhere. Although Link also managed to get engaged to a fish girl in this game, so I guess this added bit of horniness should perhaps be less surprising than that. But no, this is what made me do the double take. I completely forgot about it, so it was a surprise to me all over again when returning to this game. There's just one more dungeon to go before we take on Ganon's castle. Next week we'll hunt for Poe's before heading into the temple. If you want to follow along, please consider subscribing. Thank you everyone who subscribed already. Please also consider sharing this podcast with a friend. I'm Paul Riley. I'll see you next week.